Hi there, I'm Cory Doctorow, and this is the Cory Doctorow Podcast. Uh, I'm speaking to you again on Monday, this time a much more relaxed and calm Monday than last week when I was still reeling with jet lag and being a single dad with Alice still in New York while I was taking care of Posey. Uh, I've survived the week, I survived the single fatherhood, in fact I had a lovely time with the baby, she was just sweet as three kinds of pie. Uh, we had a lot of fun rolling around in the bed and making each other laugh and tickling each other and chasing each other around the house and reading stories and watching videos and going out on the town. So it's been a great week and I'm very glad to have Alice back too. Uh, a couple of announcements. I'm coming to the U.S. Uh, at least twice for public appearances, uh, not counting book tours, in 2010. Uh, the first announcement is that I will be at Icon 35, a steam-powered convention of the future, uh, November 5th to 7th in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, I'll also be at NorwestCon in Seattle, where I'm one of the two guests of honor, along with Werner Vinge, uh, writer guests of honor, that is, in Seattle, April 1st to 4th. Um, work goes very well on Clockwork Fagan, uh, the short story I'm working on. It's almost done, and uh, I have uh, one long short story and one short short story to write after that, and then I can start work on my next novel, Pirate Cinema. Uh, also, for those of you in Austria, I'll be speaking at the Creative Industries Conference in Graz on February the 4th, uh, and I may see you there. Um, one other thing before I get to the reading, a lovely bit of public approbation from um, uh, Bruce Sterling. Uh, he was commenting in his annual State of the State of the World Address on the well, well.com. Uh, and he mentioned that he had just gone to read my novel Makers, and here's what he said. This is just one king hell of a science fiction novel. Nobody in the world but Corey could have fabricated this amazing thing. It makes 20th century science fiction read like an antique collection. So I'm pretty, uh, pretty incredibly happy about that. Bruce is a friend of mine, but also a mentor and idol of mine, and it just feels particularly wonderful to get that bit of approval from him. So without further ado, a little more Martian Chronicles. I may finish this today, or it may be next week. There was a magic time there, after the latency to Earth became too high to play on the server, and while we're still too far from Mars to do anything except look at slowly updating spreadsheets from there, when nobody thought about Martian Chronicles. I trickled back into the junior colonist lounge by dribs and drabs, coming in for a few minutes at a time, keeping mostly to myself, though I nodded affably enough at anyone who nodded at me, even Helene and Rishab, who seemed to be up to something intense in their private corner. I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. Here's what I sent to Laney the day after she made her extraordinary offer. Dear Laney, in regards to our meeting yesterday, I have carefully considered your generous offer, and on reflection, I have decided to take you up on it. I am looking forward to a long, profitable relationship. Sincerely, David Brian Oglethorpe Smith III, CEO, DBoss Corp, Mars, CEO, retired, DBoss Corp, Earth. Not that I didn't agonize over it. I wanted to make it on Mars because I was smarter and better, not because I just got lucky. But I didn't just get lucky. Laney Syndicate had picked me because of the job I'd done running DBoss Corp on Earth. And let's be honest, if the only way to win the game was to get in good with the big guns, I'd be crazy not to get in good with them. There's no nobility in failing. Plus, I'd get to hire my dad, which would be just delicious. Boy, was I ever looking forward to that. That's what really got me. Daydreaming about what it would be like after Marsfall, when we'd all pour out onto that strange world, bounding high in the fractional gravity, our body clocks already adjusted to the Martian day from three months with the Eagle systems running on Mars standard. 
We go to our housing, grubby new chums around the sophisticated, happy, settled Martians, and we'd start to try to find our fortunes. No whining allowed. Even when there were no fortunes to be had, no whining allowed. There my pals would be, my father and mother and everyone, trying to find a way to get ahead on their new planet, where all the good opportunities seemed to have been taken, and there I'd be, rebuilding Oglethorpe Corp, catching all these great breaks, growing more profitable, growing bigger, getting famous, being a poster child, a hero. And I could be generous. I could welcome in the new colonists, give them positions in my big successful corp, even Helene and Vijay, who'd come to see me as the kind of titan of business I'd always known I could be. I've been shocked by the idea that on Mars, Martian Chronicles didn't just influence life, it was life. But after giving it some thought, I realized that I'd always been better at MC than real life, so why shouldn't I be glad I was heading to the place when the Martian Chronicles ruled? Nobody was thinking about Martian Chronicles in the Junior Colonist Lounge. Not even me. Once I sent that note to Laney, I realized there was no way I could possibly end up as a debt-haunted drone in someone else's corp, and my subconscious mind stopped worrying about it. The crazy anxiety dreams I'd been having ended. The fact that Dad was all still tied up in knots didn't faze me. My future was set. The second day after Apogee, I drifted into the Junior Colonist Lounge. It was my morning, along with a third of the ship. I was on second shift, which ran from the ship's 0800 to 1600. I had a couple of my computers with me, a handheld, and a bigger control unit that I used to drive my goggles and other devices. Both had just received Mars OS, the Martian operating system that ran on Martian time, each second lasting about 1.03 Earth seconds, and used Martian protocols and converted over the whole interface, spell checker, and everything to simplified English. In theory, it ran on everything that was computerized, Phones, handhelds, tape measures, music players, PCs, pedometers, headphones, cameras. But in practice, Mars OS didn't work as well as we'd been told it would. Laney just shrugged her shoulders at the complaining colonists and told them, No whining, gang. The engineers who built Mars OS have been living on Mars for the past ten years. Technology has moved on. The source code is on the ship's server. Some of you are wicked techie. Figure it out. Or throw away your gewgaws and get used to living with fewer gadgets. Or hell, wait until we make Mars fall and see if anyone's made a Martian replacement that you can buy. So that's what we were mostly thinking about in the JC lounge. How to get all our toys working again. Most of the cheap handheld devices were DOA, which was especially hard on us kids, since no one wanted to be a dork carrying around a huge computer that you needed a handbag or backpack for. If you couldn't wear it around your wrist or neck, or shove it in a back pocket, you wouldn't be caught dead carrying it. The kids who were really into the tech side of things suddenly became monster rock gods, able to lay hands on your precious device and bring it back to life with a few incantations. They were charging all the market could bear for it, too, and getting some of the best stuff on the ship, filling huge floating low-G net bags with booty, painting kits, knives and multi-tools, t-shirts, jewelry, musical instruments, the pathetic possessions we were able to squeeze into our luggage allowances. A lot of kids were way pissed at them, accusing them of gouging, but I shrugged and went back to our room for my harmonica and my set of permanent grease pencils. If they could do it and I couldn't, why shouldn't they charge all the market could bear for it? Besides, once DBoss Corp was running hot and black on Mars, I'd be able to buy back all my stuff and more. But as I lined up to hand over my treasures, Vijay and Helene drifted over to me. They were bungeed together, which was a convenient way to stay close enough to speak quietly amid all the eddies, breezes, and drifting debris in the JC lounge. 
As they neared me, Helene held out her hand to me, as though she wanted me to help her break so that they could join me in waiting in line. I was unexpectedly glad to see that hand. I'd miss them more than I dared admit to myself. I took Helene's hand and braced myself to help absorb their minimal inertia. As our fingers made contact, Helene whipped her arm up, keeping a tight grip on my hand, and jerked me out of the queue. We began to do slow donuts in the JC lounge, dizzying whirls that stopped only when we reached a bulkhead and Vijay stopped me. I went from glad to furious in three nauseous circles around the JC lounge. Once we were velcroed down, I glared at them. I'd been waiting in line for an hour, I hissed. Now you've blown it. That was the line rule on the eagle. Get out of line, lose your place. And the eagle was all lines. Helene crossed her eyes at me and stuck out her tongue. First of all, it's nice to see you too, stranger. Second, who cares about the line? Third, I can fix your stupid computers and I won't charge you anything for the favor. Fourth, we've got lots to talk about her. I took a moment to absorb all this. You can fix my computers? She rolled her eyes. Duh, I've been fooling around with Mars OS for years. I can't believe the rest of you didn't bother. It's the bloody operating system that our new planet runs on. Knowing how it works is as important as knowing how to work a rebreather or patch a cold suit. Give. She held out her hand. I passed her my handheld and my main computer pack and some of my peripherals. She pulled a chopstick out of her hair and stuck one end of it. It was tipped with memory pins, I saw, into the handheld and began to poke at it. You got your data backed up, she said. I nodded. She stuck the tip of her tongue out of one corner of her mouth and unfolded a keyboard and screen from her back pocket and rubbed them against the handheld to get them connected to it and then went to work. Vijay had been silent until now. Finally, he said, Dave, I'm very glad we found you. We have something we would like to discuss with you in utmost confidence. We were tethered to a relatively deserted stretch of bulkhead in the JC lounge. Deserted for the JC lounge would have been crowded anywhere earthside except for a mega stadium concert. Here? He smiled. My place, he said. He led us back down his private maintenance corridor, where his tiny leftover toilet was. We were strung out sideways again, Helene behind me and Vijay in front of me, and I hunched over a bit so that they could see each other. You're a very mysterious person sometimes, Vijay, I said, trying for a joke and failing. Vijay did me the courtesy of a weak smile. You know what the crew are planning to do with MC, he said. You remember forming a syndicate, offering their labor as a package. I remember, I said, it's totally illegal and doomed. If the MC market is as tough as they say it is, the big corpse will laugh them off and then crush them like bugs. I agree, Helene said. Me too, Vijay said. The problem is they're not thinking big enough. Look, these syndicates have clobbered competition on Mars. They have the whole thing sewn up. But there are only 1,000 Martians today, plus the few kids born Mars side. We're about to double their population. This is going to be massively destabilizing. I started to get deja vu, and I started to get uncomfortable. Didn't I just have this conversation with Lainey? Here's the thing. When the markets there go into chaos, all bets are off. If there was a leadership team with a new corp, a better corp, one that would give the new chums a better deal than the syndicates would, well, who wouldn't join it, Helene said behind me. I wished I could see her face. Even the old-timers who are at the bottom of the food chain. Imagine if there was a trio, a former senior auditor, a former high-powered raider, and a former successful CEO. Imagine the power of a trio running a company with the integrity of the auditor general, the guts of a raider, the acumen of a leading CEO. We wouldn't have to take whatever deal the syndicates there are offering. We could topple the syndicates, institute a fair, competitive market. 
My mouth was dry. The thing was, it was a good plan. A wonderful plan. If they'd made me this offer before Laney had made hers, I would have jumped at it in a second. And that's without knowing that MC was real life on Mars. But now that I'd made my deal with Laney, I'd already committed to the same syndicate VJ and Helene were planning on destroying. I had a momentary vision of going to Laney with this, telling her that I had two clever friends who'd be perfect at helping to provide cover for her plan. We could start our radical, destabilizing corp, bringing all the new chums into it, let everyone think that we were destroying the old order, and meanwhile, we'd be taking our own orders from the syndicate. We would be the syndicate. But there were so many ways that could go wrong. Could I trust Helene? She was a raider, after all. She specialized in dismantling corps without regard for the work that went into them. Could I trust VJ? You don't get to be an auditor without being stiff-necked about rules and regulations. And what if Laney said that she didn't want any help from my friends? What if she made good on her promise to shove me out of the airlock for discussing it? No, I didn't really think she was serious about spacing me, but with Laney there was always a tiny corner of me that believed that she meant it. And there I was, trying to talk myself out of trusting my only two real friends from millions of kilometers in all directions. I felt... I don't know, disembodied, like I was hovering over myself, watching myself decide to turn my back on my buddies. I wanted to turn and run, but in the narrow slip space with Helene behind me and Vijay before me, there was no way I could. And there was a better me, the me that wasn't floating above myself, the me that was in myself, sweating so hard it ran down into my eyes, that needed to talk. I need to talk to you, I said. We are talking, Helene said from behind me. I ignored her. My eyes were locked on VJ's. What did you call it? Utmost confidence? I need to talk to both of you in utmost confidence. Helene looked grave. VJ looked grave. Sounds like you have a secret. Helene sighed. How come everyone's got a big dark secret around here? You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.